Anyway, well, God bless you guys. Well, tonight, turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. We're going to still be in this wonderful uh, minor prophet. Um, I've not really planned out the rest of Hosea. Um, I mean, there's 14 chapters, some are longer than others. Uh, I'm going to try to work out a, a, a plan for the rest of this book. Uh, we'll be in here for at least another few weeks for sure. Um, but we're here at chapter 3, a very short chapter of only five verses. It's almost as if chapter 3 is kind of like this bridge between the prophecy of chapter 2 and then the prophecies from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 14. So following chapter 3, the rest of Hosea is written uh, as a prophecy. It's in that, prof- that prophetic voice. Um, and in Hebrew prophecy, a lot of it is poetic. That's why it is laid out the way it is. Um, in the ancient world, not, I mean, just, not just the Hebrew uh, ways of prophesying, but in the ancient world itself, whenever someone who was connected with the divine would speak, it was usually in the creative way of poetry. Right. Uh, when you read the ancient um, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, has anybody ever studied Homer? Chad did, yeah. Did you memorize it? <laughs> uh, but it, it, the, it, the Iliad and the Odyssey from Homer is poetry. Um, and uh, the ancient Greeks would recite it as poetry, and that's how they would learn it. But it became, it was really seen as a gift of the gods to the Greeks. That's, so in the ancient mind, poetry was the way that uh, the voice of the divine was relayed. So that's why when we read a lot of the Old Testament prophets, it comes across that way. It's written that way. It's spoken that way. But it's God speaking through the prophets. If I remember right, it was about 1,200 pages, too. What's that? Iliad. Oh, the Iliad and the Odyssey? Yeah. Yeah. And a Greek child would have memorized that as, as their textbook. They would have. They would have been able to recite it. Um, and so... Mm-hmm. Uh, probably closer to 700. Yeah, yeah, around that time or older. So, but again, the ancient way of thinking is much different than our contemporary 21st century way of thinking. So it's important for us to mention that from time to time because as we think, it's, we're very linear and structured in our grammar and our we have when we actually write a paragraph now it's actually in a logical form of thinking uh, ancient poetry was not necessarily that way it's more fluid yeah chad it was also memorable. <clears throat> memorable that's that's exactly right yes yes that's exactly why see we live in the modern day of not just the the modern Gutenberg press changed everything, but now we have internet technology and texting, so we don't have to memorize anything. But yeah, that's why the ancient mind thought in poetry like this, because that's how you memorize things, right? They're your parent, the homeschoolers, how many homeschoolers are memorizing poetry in their curriculum? You are, Monica? Yeah. yeah. You haven't asked me? Yeah. I haven't. No? Okay. But even even think about even think about our music is music the verse in music it's very poetic and so that's how we remember these things right and they they're recalled many years later um, many of the uh, I've had the privilege of 
of actually teaching and preaching in nursing homes over the years. And when you have some of these folks who are up in ages, you know, and they've been in the nursing home and their body is declining, when they come into those worship services and you start singing those old songs, they come alive. They come alive, right? Because that's how it connects to our minds. So the prophecies of, Hosea, of the minor prophets, um, that's why they were so memorable, that's why many of that's why Jesus cited them. That's why the prophets or the apostles cited them in the New Testament. It was part of their education. It was part of how they memorized and learned God's word. See where we're going? So tonight, though, we're going to look at chapter three. It's it's in a little bit of a different structure than the rest of, of the prophecy. Um, it this is the only time in chapter three that we're going to that actually Hosea will be mentioned again. Now, Gomer is not mentioned by name, but clearly this is referring to Gomer here in chapter 3 as well. For the rest of the prophecy, it is God speaking words of, uh, of exile coming and punishment coming, but also redemption. And the other thing is we have to remember here, one large theme here in Hosea's prophecy is the idea of God loving his people despite the fact that they are acting like a wayward, adulterous wife. And chapter 3 is going to help us see exactly how that plays out. Okay? Let's read chapter 3 together. Verse 1. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins, is what my translation says. Some translations may say flagons of wine. Does anybody have that in the King James? Flagons of wine. Verse 2, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecteth of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And then verse 5, afterward... The children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Hmm. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this minor prophet, Hosea, and the time tonight where you will speak to us through him. And so, God, I pray tonight that you would open our minds to understand what you are saying through this prophet how you are showing your love to your people while at the same time, God, holding us accountable. Lord, that's, for us, if, if love is there, then our errors must be overlooked and there is no consequence. But you're showing us here, God, something much different in how to hold, hold accountable the bride that you love. And so, God, I pray that you uh, speak to us tonight. You give us understanding tonight that you'd give us opportunity to really dig deep into this tonight. And for that, Lord, we give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Now, remembering chapter 2. We won't go all the way through chapter 2, but those who were here last week, um, can you get uh, just a brief summary? If you can remember kind of the high point of chapter 2, what was God saying to uh, the children of Israel, Gomer, his wife, what was she doing? Remember, she was chasing after 
another lover. That's the language. She was chasing after another lover. And that idea of another lover was representative of, anybody remember? We're going to have to have pop quizzes on Wednesday night now. False gods, right? Gomer was the wayward, adulterous wife, and the lover that is cited in chapter 2 is indicative of her desiring someone other than her husband, right? And that other desire, that other, quote, lover, was for false gods. That's what the nation, that's what Israel was doing. Remember, the northern kingdom of Israel is who Hosea is talking to here. They were wayward people, and they desired another husband. But then at the end of chapter 2, what, how did God end that chapter 2? He's pointing out the truth of their sin and their waywardness through most of the chapter. But then at the end, verses 14 through the end, uh, verses 14 through uh, 23, what is God saying there? He's saying, I'm going to come after you. I want to woo you, right? The, the husband, the faithful husband, is coming after the adulterous wife, the wayward wife, who has forgotten him. But he, his, God is saying, I'm going to come after you and woo you back to me, allure you with my affections so that you will call me your husband once again. Remember that at the end of chapter 2? Now, some of the ladies in here are thinking, boy, that's so romantic. Is that true, ladies? Does that sound romantic? Y'all can, it's okay. You can be honest. It would be embarrassing. It would be embarrassing? Yeah, because you're the one who's straight. Okay. Well, a good point, right? It's embarrassing, not necessarily romantic in the modern idea of a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie. Right? Yeah, Hallmark movies really bother me. I don't think they're very biblical. I'm just, okay? And we can have another lesson on that one time. They're all the same. They go over the same formula. The Hallmark or the Lifetime Channel movies, the Hallmark movies, they're all the same. And I don't think they're very biblical. And that's what we're going to see here tonight. The biblical idea here in Hosea is that God, the husband, is going after the wayward, adulterous wife. But you're saying that would be embarrassing. I agree. I mean, I'm not a wife, but I would think that would be embarrassing. But a Lifetime Channel movie would say, oh, everything's all fine. Just overlook your, your sin. You know, I know you hurt me and you cheated on me, but it's okay. Right? That's the way the movie would go, wouldn't it? And none of them take place in the South. None of them take place in the South. They're always like up in New England somewhere at Christmas time with the snow. Right? <laughs> On Hosea. And it was, it was in the West. And I know a lot of women who read that and loved it. Did they? So it was, yes, it is redeeming. I mean, there was a lot of women who talked about it. Oh, you got, the name of the book was Redeeming Love. Uh-huh. And it was the same kind of thing. She, she ran off and kept running off. And he kept going back together. <laughs> yeah. It's romantic, but we have to understand. And I'm, I'm setting the tone here for chapter three. Um, husbands, here's the thing: do do we? And I just want to clarify this: do we, when we think of romantic, is it is it that the husband just overlooks your waywardness and just brings you back with, "We're never going to talk about it again, baby. It's behind us. 
right? Is that the way it would go? In our modern mindset, it would. In the modern entertainment industry, it would. But in Hosea, it's not. And what we're going to see here, especially in chapter 3, I want to point out that this is, chapter 3 is showing the biblical truth of genuine love while also chastising the wayward wife. Love in the midst of chastisement. You know what I mean when I say chastise? Pointing out, it's almost, it's, all, it's kind of shaking the finger, but it's also, you've sinned, let's not ignore the sin. There are consequences to the sin, yet I'm going to love you through it. You see the difference here I'm talking about between the Lifetime movie idea and the biblical idea in Hosea? Because if we're not careful, we're going to take things from the secular entertainment world and impose it onto what God says in His Word, and we're going to totally distort the gospel. The gospel is not God comes after His sinners that He loves so much and just says, it's okay, just come back to me and it's all forgotten. No, it's not. That's what we're going to see in Hosea. There you go. Hallmark movies have a distortion of what love is. And we as Christians in 21st century America who spend all of our time in entertainment. You know, our culture is defined by our entertainment. We are an entertaining, we are an entertained culture. Correct? And so if we're not careful, the, that, that aspect of our entertained culture will define and interpret Scripture in a way that is not correct. That's why I want to bring that out today. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Did you hear this? Right. That's right. In the Lifetime movies, this is what I'm talking about. Just ignore the sin. Ignore the waywardness. You don't have to repent. You don't have to earn the trust of your husband again. It's all forgotten. That's not what it says in Hosea. Okay, let's take a look here at chapter 3. Now, as we're looking at chapter 3, I want us to remember verse 23 of chapter 2. Right? At God is actually beginning the, good, the goodness of His mercies of bringing back His wayward wife. Uh, at, the verse, at, at verse 23 of chapter 2, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. That's the beginning here. That segues into verse 1 of chapter 3. Now chapter 3, the scene shifts. Hosea now talks in, uh, about himself. Notice in verse, verse 1, the grammatical tense now shifts to first person. It's the only time we're going to see this in the prophecy. All the rest of it, chapters 1 and 2, and then verse, uh, chapters 4 through 14, uh, will not be in first person. It will be, thus saith the Lord, God says this. But in chapter 3, verse 1, notice this is Hosea speaking from his mind, first person, and the Lord said to me. Don't see that in chapter 1. So chapter 1 and 3, let's think about this. All we have about Hosea in the Bible, the only thing that we know about Hosea is in chapter 1 and chapter 3. That's it. We know nothing else about him. 
And so that's why this chapter is a little, it's, it's got some significance there. But at the same time, if the Bible never mentions Hosea by name again in this way, it doesn't mean that he's belittled. It's just that he's not as important as what God is saying through him. I think that's the point to understand here. There's not a historical context of his life and his circumstances that we can actually unpack. All we know is God called him to marry a prostitute um, and love her as an example of his love for Israel. Okay? That's all we know. And so look here. God calls Hosea here, and the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Why is he saying this? Verse 1, we can look at it. There's three sections here. I mean, this he's calling Hosea to actually, by example, show what restoring love is. He's going to restore Gomer back to home. Rest, restorative love. Restoring that love. This is what this is going to look like. Right? Uh, it's an expression of God's words of restoration. Hosea is living this out. Now, some, uh, here's where I'm going to disagree with John Calvin, and that's dangerous for a pastor to say in a Reformed-minded church. Okay? John Calvin's commentaries on this disagrees that this actually is a real-life example that Hosea never really married uh, Gomer, that he, that he never really had these illegitimate children. Calvin argues, no, this is just a vision. I'm going to disagree with Calvin. Do what? Based on what? Uh, scholars, well, and here, here's the justification for them. I disagree with that. It's the mindset that if, uh, if Hosea's marriage was supposed to be legitimate marriage, he would have never married a prostitute really. So it had to have been a vision or a dream because if it was a real marriage, God would not have honored it. That's their argument. That's Calvin's argument. I disagree with him on that. Chad, is that okay that I say that? Yeah. Okay. In fact, yeah. Puritanical thinking. You know what I mean? You know, when you, the Puritans, right? Uh, they were very dogmatic in pure marriage and pure holy living. And Hosea would have not fit into that mold if he had really married a prostitute. So this was just a dream, a vision. I disagree. I disagree. I, especially when you read chapter 3. Boy, it sounds like this is an actual event, something that God called him to do, right? So here's, here's why I want to make a point here. God will often play out His Word, His will, the, the message of the gospel, if you will, through us. Now, that'll cause you to pause there, won't it? This actually is more important about why our marriages, our Christian marriages, must honor God's Word and follow God's Word because literally... I won't say literally. It's not just figuratively. Literally, our marriages are living out the gospel. And this is an example in chapter 3 of Hosea. God is calling Hosea to literally, again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. 
And then he goes and redeems her out of slavery and bondage. I think that was a real event. As a living example, a message, a literal illustration in real life of God loving Israel. That's just me. I agree. Okay. Yeah. It, it also doesn't really make sense in that if he wouldn't do it in reality, why would he give you a dream about it? There you go. Because that's also, it would be sinful. Right. Um, and also, if God is having that relationship with Israel, then are you saying that his relationship with Israel is illegitimate? Yeah. So that, that whole thing just seems really silly. I'm kind of astounded that he would. Well, again, it's that uh, we want to be holy living. We want to have a holy life. So if, if God called us to marry an illegitimate wife, would we? Oh, no, God would never dare do that. You know, we, we set the standards out of, out of bounds, out of reality. I'm not saying God's going to call you to go marry a prostitute or a drunkard. You know, ladies, you may have to go marry a drunkard. I don't know. If God calls you to that, then maybe he's going to... He's not going to call you to be a prophetess. They're done, okay? <laughs> the, the age of the prophets are over, okay? He's not going to call you to that. Um, I don't know, but, but if he... See what we're pointing here in chapter 3? It, this, this is a real illustration of God's love for a prostitute, a wayward wife. And Gomer and Hosea are going to live this out. It's part of the prophecy, okay? So look here, verse 1. Mm-hmm. of God and his, and his people. Yeah. The, the, incarn- the idea of incarnation shows that God is in reality, the reality that we know. Correct? So if, that's the, if he will incarnate himself in his son Jesus Christ, certainly he'll call a prophet to marry a prostitute as an illustration that he will use to teach something. On that basis, yeah. you could say, well, Jonah didn't really go in to finish. Yes. Well, Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. Did y'all hear that? If, if that? if this was a vision, so would Noah being drunk and naked. So would uh, Jonah never really was swallowed by a fish. You know, that's a slippery slope in how to interpret Scripture if you're not careful. That's a good point. Okay. Right. No. Very clear. And right here in verse 1, there's no mention of a dream or a vision. God said to me, what? There's an action. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. So let's break down verse 1. First of all, the phrase, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. The second section, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel. See right there's the illustration. Go do this. As even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, this is he's comparing the two. And he and look here, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, why does he love the children of Israel? And why is it important? It's because though they turn to the gods and uh, uh, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Now, let's we'll break this down. What's happening here in, in verse one? Again, it's an illustration. The first part, I think, is pretty straightforward. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. What does this mean? To love a woman um, who is loved by another man. Now, 
contrast what is in chapter 3, verse 1, love a woman, from chapter 1, verse 2, when God first said, take a wife. I think that's significant. It's one thing to take a wife, because marriages can be arranged. Marriages can be business arrangements. Marriages can be of convenience. I've heard of those. Actually, I had a set of grandparents that I was convinced it was a marriage of convenience. They loved each other, but in a different way. Yeah, they had separate bank accounts. They had separate cars. They had separate bedrooms. They lived in the same house, and they had kids. And I was always convinced it was more a marriage of convenience than it was like affection. And they had affection, but different kind of affection. So I'm saying? Um, but they were also married during the Great Depression. Much different time. Right? So, uh, take a wife in chapter 1, verse 2, versus chapter 3, verse 1, God says something very specific. Love a woman. Clearly talking about Gomer. Don't go out and get a second wife. That's not what it's being called. But love her who is loved by another man. The King James says, who is loved by her friend, or loved of her friend. The translations there vary over the years, but the implication is that this woman is loved by someone else. Right. Um, what is the issue here? I mean, who is loving this woman other than God? I mean, he, he anticipates this. I mean, up until this point from chapter 1 to chapter 2, what has God done with his love and his favor for Israel? I think it's very clear in chapter 2 that God is withdrawing his love and favor of them. He's very bold about that. You are chasing after other lovers. You are chasing after other gods. So I will withdraw my love and my favor over you. That was in chapter 2. Now he's calling him in chapter 3 to go love after this woman, even though she's loved by someone else. And God's goodwill is now extending out to bring her back uh, as an adulteress. Now, here at the end of verse 1... Yeah, verse 1. Uh, Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love flagons of wine or love cakes of raisins. What's going on here? This is often referred to in some of the prophets. Jeremiah 44 talks about this too. We don't really know what this phrase means. It's, it's, a loose, it's, it's a weird translation. Scholars are still debating over, is it... Raisins? Is it wine? Is it grapes? What is it? It's, I guess the big implication here is when you were worshiping pagan gods, what did you, how, what did you offer as a sacrifice? Well, the fruit of the vine, the fruit of the harvest. Uh, that's part of it. But also there's a double meaning here. Um, when you offered these things to the pagan gods... These love of cakes of raisins, it's really the produce of the grape harvest, um, but it could also be sweet cakes made from figs or dates. Now, what did we determine last week about figs? What did they represent? Y'all remember? The sweetness of forbidden desire. The sweetness of forbidden desire. So you see kind of the imagery continuing here, right? Um, some translators actually suggest that these are jars of wine. 
not raisin cakes. But I don't, I don't think it's important. We don't have to debate that too much. But the implication is that's, that's the, the symbolism of the adultery. You are offering the produce of your vineyard to pagan gods. That's an act of adultery. Right? See where we're going here? Y'all okay? Y'all tracking with me? Sometimes I think I'm losing you. So thank you. There you go. That, that's, you know, that's what she loves, things that are of the flesh. Things of the flesh. Yeah. And, 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 and he also stuck with me that he said, go again. So he knew she was an adulteress, and maybe he had a, an idea that maybe this would all change. Well, it, it's pretty clear that it did not. Go, go, again. Again. <laughs> go again. Go again. Go again. Yeah. She's, she's continuing to leave you. Yeah. She's continuing to leave the children. She's continuing to go back to her prostitute ways uh, and probably I would argue most likely it's not directly said here but it's inferred maybe she was a temple prostitute in a pagan temple somewhere Baal worship maybe that was part of what was going on go again and get her go again and get her and of course you know the fruit of the vine also can also in, in, imply drunkenness you know desires of the flesh drunk with wine drunk with the wine of the pagan gods Anyway, all those things. That's really what's happening here, okay? So as we move down into chapter into verse 2, verses 2 and 3, again, is showing some, the comparison. So if you notice in verse 1 and 2, you see a pattern. God speaks the, the real action in real life, and then the second half of the verse talks about um, the imagery that it represents. So actually, verses 2 and 3 do that. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lecteth of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So I also be to you. So verses two and three are, are I, want you, I want us to pay attention to hear about how this relates to how God deals with sinners. Because verses four and five will reflect what verses two and three say. Hosea, clearly he's buying Gomer back from somewhere. Uh, most likely she's in some kind of indentured slavery, a debt of some kind maybe. Uh, and he's, he has to buy her out of this. I mean, that's sacrificial. Isn't that romantic, ladies? Your husband sacrifices all this for you to buy you back. Yeah. Um, in today's money, I don't know, but I can give you the uh, biblical, under, biblical imagery here, okay? Um, Fifteen shekels of silver. If, you, if you're taking notes, Exodus chapter 21 verse 32 tells us that a servant injured by an ox is worth 30 shekels. An injured servant, an injured slave, injured by an ox is worth 30 shekels. So he paid 15 shekels. What does that imply? She's not very valuable. And also the implication of barley. Um, that, that, that hints at the idea that the rich didn't live on barley. That was a poor man's meal. So if you bought her with less than half of the value of a slave, actually half of an injured slave's price, and then you actually use barley, that implies not very valuable at all. 
you're a woman of prostitution. See the point here? Yeah. It seems like that's a, since the price is so low, a woman that nobody else would want. A woman that no one else would want is a good way to understand that. He's bidding for her because she's a prostitute. Yeah. And it sounds like he's bidding the lowest thing because he has no competition because nobody else wants her. May not be much competition in the bidding. Yeah. Maybe. May have been a prostitute's price. Yeah. Very could well be. Yeah. See where we're going here? So we kind of get the idea of, of Gomer's value in the public eye. Okay. Um, I mean, her sin had brought her so low. So, I mean, Gomer, I guess you could say, was damaged goods. Less than a valuable woman. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's the imagery. That we're damaged goods. We are damaged goods. We're good. not worthy. No. And we have idolatrous ways. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And the picture of Christ being the ones that took our place. Yeah, and that's what verse, that's what verse 5 is going to remind us. You're exactly right. No, <laughs> feel free. This is my sister-in-law, Kelly, if you've not met her. Okay. Kelly, yeah, it's fine. You, you feel free to share whatever is on your heart as from this. Because this is what we do here on Wednesday nights, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah. Gomer is clearly in the prophecy representing the wayward northern kingdom of Israel. But in our situation, yeah, we are sinners, adulterous in our ways toward our Father God. And he comes after us. Okay. But notice here how he's doing this. Notice here in verses 2 and 3 how Hosea is going after Gomer. Um, Notice, I want you to pay attention, he is not fawning humbly over her. In other words, he's not begging her back on his knees. You notice that? That's important. Um, he, He doesn't lay aside his rights as the offended husband. He's holding on to that right of offense and that right and authority of the husband in the home here. That's a very important thing to pay attention. There's no language here that I see that shows Hosea's weakening of his authority in the home, nor his casting aside, you know, I am the offended party. There are rights here that I am due. You seeing that? And so does God... How does God approach us in our sin? Does God set aside his right as the father? Does he come to us on his knees begging, oh, pretty, please come back to me? He's alluring us. He's drawing us. He's he's calling us back to him in his love. But what does it look like? Again, it doesn't look like a Hallmark movie or a Lifetime Channel movie, does it? Here in verse 2, it's very important to see how how Hosea talks to her. Verses 2 and 3. So I bought her. We see how much he paid for. Not much at all. But the verse 3. I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's laying down the law here in verse 3. You see that? Now how many husbands in this room are going, Amen. None of y'all are laughing on that. That's a good joke right there, guys. And the lady's going, you better not go there. But you see that in verse 3? As the husband who was offended, his wife is the guilty party. He does not, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. 
I must have done something wrong to you to make you run away from me. Which, you know, maybe someone who is in, the, in, in a prostitute's life, maybe they were in a horrible situation that forced them into that. Maybe. That could easily be a case in a lot. But that's not the case here with Hosea. Nor is it the case with God to his people. God has done nothing to offend us to cause us to run away from him into prostitution, has he? Okay. Yeah. Um, he's confining his wife at home, isn't he? Why would God do that? Why would God, when he buys back the wayward wife, now lay down the law, you're staying at home with me tonight? You're going to stay home with me for, you can't go. In other words, she's grounded, it sounds like. Does that sound like good language? A husband grounding his wife, you can't go out tonight, sweetheart. You've got to stay home with me. I bought you. You belong to me. You're not going out to the temple and prostituting yourself anymore. You must now stay home with me. Yeah, give me the car keys. What's that? <laughs> Country music song. That's hard language for us to see, but that's kind of what I see here, right? Uh, how many of us husbands would lay down the law like that with our wife? We wouldn't dare, would we? But Hosea is doing that with Gomer. She has proven herself untrustworthy. She has proven herself as an adulteress. She has proven herself unfaithful. And now Hosea, who has bought her back, you're staying home tonight, sweetheart. Well, it's not only that. It's for her own good as well. It's for her own good. Yeah. There you go. You're staying home because I'm gonna, I love you so much. I want to help you. I want to turn your face back to the Lord. I'm going to show you the love of God in this marriage. Yeah. Now, in today's society, he would be condemned for controlling the woman, wouldn't he? Yet in the biblical imagery here, he's, he has every right as the husband, as the leader of the home, to not be cruel to his wife and hold her as a prisoner at home. That's not what I see here. He's being loving here and saying, you're not going back. You're going to be confined at home. Now, let's continue here in that verse. because be Yeah, it seems like a, it's not just tonight. It seems like... Forever. It's an indefinite staying at home, right? Yeah. Um, why is that? Let's remember here. Many days. Yeah, uh, so that was verse 3. And I said there, you must dwell as mine for many days. Okay, that's important because when we read verses 4 and 5, we're going to see what that's, that's a good connection. For many days. Remember that Hosea's prophecy is a prophecy. He's pointing, God is speaking through Hosea about something that will happen in the future. What would that be? Exile. Assyria is just to the north of the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And of course, Israel in their foolishness has made alliances with them and made alliances with Egypt by this point, And that will turn around on them in history and bite them. So you will stay with my, you will be mine and stay home for many days. That is language, poetic language pointing to for a very long time. Yeah. As long as it takes. Okay. Yeah, we as parents would say that to our children when we ground them, wouldn't we? You're going to stay grounded for as long as it takes, Gabriel. Right? But again, a husband is saying this to his wife. You're staying home for many days, as long as it takes, but it's pointing to something bigger in history. There's a future exile coming. Continue out, let's continue here in the verses, right? Verse 4. Now verse 4 is the second half of this. For the children of Israel, actually verse 4 and 5 actually reflect what verses 2 and 3 mean. Okay, that's the way to understand this. What verses 2 and 3 are in reality, verses 4 and 5 are the future prophecy. That's the way to kind of break this down. Okay, so imagine the image of, of dwelling at home for many days and not going out and playing for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince. You see the connection there? Dwell many days. Is that what the King James says? Same wording? Okay. So verse 4, you could connect verse 4 uh, to verse 3. For many days. For by many days, yeah. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. What does that mean? What's that pointing to? Okay. Okay. Yeah. Did you hear that? Like a drug addict, everything being taken away from them. We're taking your drugs, taking your paraphernalia. Everything that's connected with your sinful life is going to be removed from you. Verse 4 is talking about exile. For many days you will be without kings, without gods, without pillars. What does it say? Uh, shall dwell many days without king or prince. It's like you're no longer a country. You have no king. You have no prince. Um, without sacrifice or pillar, your temple will be removed from you. Um, without ephod or household gods, you're going into exile. I'm removing everything from you for your own good. See that imagery there? Does God do that to us? When we are wayward children, we are the bride of Christ. Does he treat his bride that way? Absolutely. I think he still does. If the church gets wayward, if the church goes off and aligns itself with secular gods, would God bring us to this point maybe? Um, you see what we're doing here? Yeah. God will do that. The children he loves, the bride he loves, if necessary, he may actually, I mean, I, I'm going to say may, he will. We see evidence of that throughout church history, don't we? Just like he's done it with the children of Israel, he may do that same thing with us. He may do it on an individual level. He may do it on a corporate level, a national level. 
They're going into exile. I mean, God, as the husband, will teach Israel, his bride, to long for him by exile. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, they say. I don't know how true that is, but I think there might be some truth to that. Has anybody here ever been separated as husband and wife for a period of time? Many times. Yeah, by work or, or other circumstances. Mil you were in the military service for a while, too, so you were away a little bit. Um, yeah. Um, I was actually uh, a war groom. Uh, Gulf War number one, 1990, 1991. Uh, moved the wedding up by three months because I was called up to active duty. We went ahead and got married. Then, I mean, weren't married long and I was gone for nine months. That's a great way to start a marriage, isn't it? <laughs> right? See where we go? What's that? Kind of how you started, same way. Right? You, you know, and we got stories like that throughout human history. The, the war bride and your husband goes off. And, but first we had kids. Okay, Chelsea's saying something back there that she probably needs to say in public. She said she wasn't even alive yet. You weren't even. <laughs> did you hear that from this young generation? I served my country and fought Saddam Hussein before you were born, just so you would have a free existence, right? Um, but you see, you see, God will remove those things like the addict needs everything removed from them, right? In order to purge them of the toxins, purge them of their addiction to the sin, their addiction to the foreign gods. Imagine this, though. They're going into exile with the nations of the pagan gods that they aligned with. And God will remove all of their identity as God's people. I want to remove the temple. I want to remove your opportunity to sacrifice and pray to me. I want to remove your kings and your princes. You'll have no more identity anymore. See that in verse 4? Because why is this? Why does God do this? Why is he doing it here? Because a long trial is going to be necessary to ensure the repentance. Repentance is not just, I'm sorry. How many times has the wayward husband come home? I'm so sorry, sweetheart. And then they turn right around and do the same thing again. Ladies, how many times have you forgiven a husband who has apologized over and over and over for the same foolishness? We're talking about a wayward wife here. We're, yeah, but we're talking about a wayward wife here. <laughs> but see, this is, this is the age of the liberated woman. We've got to be careful. We've got to have equal sin on both sides now. You see where we're going, though? So why is it that God sends Israel away in a generation-long exile? Because repentance needs to be verified. You could say, well, God, you know the heart of Israel. You know the heart of every individual. You know the heart of the nation. Yes, but this is God's way. I'm going to make sure you really, I want to make sure your repentance sticks. <laughs> I want to make sure that you understand the consequences of your adulterous ways with other gods. Take it away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I never really thought about like when God pulled Israel out of Egyptian slavery and he had them in the wilderness and they had nothing except what he gave them. Yeah. I just had never thought about it in this, yeah. in light of that or this, I guess, where it's, 
you know, almost like fasting. Like, mm -hmm. we either he's going to take it from us and wait it out until we finally, our flesh, we've killed the flesh and have turned back to him, or we do it ourselves and we do it the easier way. Right. And we put away all of the nonsense that is distracting us in our lives and focus on him. There you go. But that generation never did. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is what verse 4 is talking about. Now, think about it. I mean, Israel often pretended to repent, to love God. And I think here in this illustration, Gomer must have pretended to love Hosea. Because notice in verse 1, remember, go again and love her. Gomer was doing the same thing. Maybe coming home, I'm sorry, Hosea, I was bad. Over and over again. So go again and love her. Same thing here in verse 4. God is sending them away because they have re Israel has repented too many times and will repent again and again. Let's see if it sticks. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. That's verse 5? Uh, yes. Yeah, we're getting there. Okay. Let's figure out why it's a contradiction. And it's not. No, it's a good segue because I was getting ready to go into verse 5. You see where we're headed? So now, at, just imagine the literal historical timeline here. Verse 4, God has taken them into exile. Um, and verse 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness when? In the latter days. Now, here is Hosea's prophecy. This is where it, this is clearly part of the prophecy that is not limited by a historical timeline. This is now clearly pointing to something else, isn't it? Okay. In the latter days is a phrase that you will find in the prophets that implies what? You, some of you are shaking your head. You know what that means? What does the latter days mean? Go What's that? When he comes again. When he comes again. Maybe, maybe Christ's return. Yeah. Future. Uh, some future day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, turn with me to Micah chapter 4. You're taking notes. Micah chapter 4. Micah says this same uh, line. Second. I turn to Malachi. I'm looking for Micah. There we go. Well, yeah, Micah. There we go. Micah chapter 4, yeah, verse 1, actually verses 1 through 5. It shall come to pass when, in the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it, 
And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. So that imagery of the latter days, it's, it's Jeremiah speaks of it often. Micah here speaks of it. It's this idea of a future clearly beyond the end of the exile. Now, at the end of the exile, they will eventually come back, but it's never the same. Um, it points to, I think, two, I think there's a twofold pointing here. Clearly pointing to the time and the arrival of Christ, the Messiah. Right? Because then and only then, when Jesus arrives, that is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophets of the day that finally we will come to the Lord with genuine hearts and be genuinely re, uh, forgiven. And there will be harmony once again and a restoration of God as husband and the church as his bride. That's one level. The second level, will, I think, can, can point to the eschatological final judgment. It's a twofold thing. But Hosea is pointing, I think, primarily to the coming of Christ. But you can still take this even further. We're, 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 still, we're in that already not yet phase. You've heard of that? If you're taking notes and you've never heard it, it's called realized eschatology. That's the term. Uh, the church, we are already saved, but not yet home. Likewise, Christ has already established the kingdom of heaven, yet it's not yet fulfilled. Right? So that latter days. You want to say something? Yeah. Over and over and over again. Did y'all hear that? Yeah. Driving to Nashville down 40, you see mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain there and back. It's kind of, it's the same way. Repentance, forgiveness. Repentance, forgiveness. Repentance, forgiveness. But there will be a day when the Messiah comes here. It's genuinely forgiven. Your hearts are transformed. And you will be in the presence of the Father. Right? Yeah. Karina, I don't know if you paid attention. When you were saying that, you're one of us now. You said mountains. (laughs) Mountains. So. <laughs> you're slipping in. You're one of us now. Okay. Um, you see. You see the imagery here in chapter three. Is it, expi- it? This is why Hosea's prophecy is still very relevant. Okay. Now the other thing here in verse five, I want to point out here is, afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His what? His goodness. His goodness. What is His goodness here? Right. Um, the Lord's goodness. 
Is it His forgiveness, His mercy? Is that His goodness? Yeah. It's all of that. Um, also, there will be a day that Israel will no longer... I want to use the word dread. Because fear in Scripture is more of a respectful awe. But is there a point with God that we dread being near Him? Yeah, I think that was Adam and Eve's first reaction to their sin. They dreaded being seen by God. But God sweetly allures us. He sweetly allures Israel back, just like Hosea is alluring Gomer back, yet with she has to suffer the consequences of her adultery. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Taught my heart to fear. That taught my heart to fear. Yeah. Is Hosea teaching Gomer to fear his love for her? Not fear, afraid, terror, but awe, awe and respectful fear. He loves me this much? I'm not gonna I'm not going to break his heart again. I'm not gonna let him down again. That's that's the goal here, right? That's what God is doing. That's what Hosea is doing with Gomer. So again, going back to my opening illustration, this is not a Lifetime or Hallmark movie. Love that loves the wayward bride in the midst of chastising her for her sin as well. God is chastising the northern kingdom of Israel. In the midst of their sin, he's causing their suffering. He's causing their exile. He's chastising them. Homer, I mean, Hosea, I've messed up Homer. Hosea is chastising Gomer in verse 4. You're going to stay with me many days. I want to limit your freedom. That's chastisement. Does God do that to us in our wayward sin? I want to chastise you and correct you because I love you so that it's for your own good and you'll love me in return. That's the gospel. Yeah. I think it's important also to see the typological element in verse 5. Okay. Because he refers to David. Yes. They will seek the Lord their God and David their king. David's dead. Yeah, at this point. Yep. And we have been for two millennia. Two millennia. Did y'all hear that? Yeah. The, the children of Israel, would have, they would have understood the imagery of the Messiah coming in the line of David. So if they were seeking David, they would be looking for the Messiah. And we know the Messiah is Christ. See that? Yet we are still in the latter days. Aren't we? We are still in the latter days. Longing for Christ's return. Aren't we? Okay. Yeah. What we don't see in this text is Gomer seeking after Hosea. No, we don't, do we? Or even meeting him halfway. We don't. Did y'all hear that? We don't see Gomer seeking after Hosea. We see Hosea seeking after Gomer. 
Now that's Reformed doctrine, boys and girls. God chases after his wayward bride. We never, that's the very definition of wayward is we don't want you anymore. We're attracted to something else. That's Reformed doctrine. That's because it's from Scripture. We don't chase after God on our own desire. Evidence shows we don't. Our actions prove it. Our heart proves it. That's a good point. Good point. All right. Any other thoughts? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and while we were yet sinners, um, Christ, died Christ died for us. us yes. One other way to describe it. Yeah, while we were weak, while we were yet sinners, and while we were enemies. He loves us while he sees us, at, or he loves us while we're his enemies. He loves us while we are in our sin and wayward, and he chastises us even as he's bringing us back in for our own good. So who's going to write a Hallmark movie with this timeline or with this kind of a plot? You think they'll buy it? No. No. (laughs) See my point? So again, we've got to be careful not to take the secular idea of love and impose it on Scripture. Because Scripture is so different. You keep laughing at me. No. Okay. When I see Chelsea grinning, I'm thinking she's... You know, you know those you know those kids in the classroom that you got to call out every now and then? Because you know? what are they saying about the teacher? I'm sorry. We'll talk after class. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts? Yes. With, see, Joe gets to talk, so Michael gets to talk. With uh, what Hosea is saying, you shall, it reminded me of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Okay. That's repeated. You shall live in God with all your parts of the mind doing the same thing for their good for their good go ahead Michael I'll give you permission it's my stepdad when I was a kid and I'm sure a lot of parents would say this you know if if you're ever at a party and you get stranded or hurt or something call me and I will come get you but I'm going to beat your butt all the way home my dad did even worse yeah. my dad told me he said when I was of driving age he said go have fun I trust you but if you call me from jail I'll see you tomorrow morning <laughs> it was just understood <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yes, sir. Anything else? Well, you had your hand up. I want to give you opportunity. Okay. Has this been, hopefully this has been helpful. A way to see the love of God for us in ways that we may be overlooking. That's, that's foundational to the gospel. Okay. The minor prophets are pointing to Christ. That's why they were preserved. That's why they were preserved. Yeah. how we can take it for granted as well. Yes, we can take it for granted. Amen? All right. Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your gift of wisdom and insight through the prophets. Hosea is just the beginning of the minor prophets that we'll look at. And so thank you for showing us the depth of your love for wayward sinners, especially your church. And how you hold us accountable to your love. 
And that's the way I hope, Lord, you will allow us to leave here and remember this. You hold us accountable to your love. And so, Lord, allow us to just bask in that tonight and the rest of this week. Bring us back safely on Sunday, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. This is fun on Wednesday nights. So...